you know, experience really is the best uh, teacher. You can watch someone drive a car for years and still not know how to drive a car. It takes that learner's permit, doesn't it, to get behind the wheel. When you get behind the wheel, you get to know the accelerator in a whole different way, don't you? You get to experience the brake in a, a whole different way. If you took high school chemistry, inevitably it went from the lecture to the lab, didn't it? Where chemistry was pretty boring until you got to blow something up. You're like, man, this is pretty awesome. Maybe I should get a little more interested in chemistry. We're at a shift in the life of the disciples. The disciples have been learning of Jesus, observing, following as disciples, but now they're sent out. They're sent out on this short-term missions trip, and there's a lot of lessons that they're learning, and we're learning as well. I think we would all admit it's pretty crazy times that we're living in. It's crazy our state, all that our state is going through, our, our laws that are contrary to a, a biblical worldview, and it can be really overwhelming for us. I think it's important for us as believers to realize this is an incredible time for us to shine, to really live out a life of Jesus Christ, to, to learn of the Lord, but then also to pour out, to encourage believers, but be a witness to uh, unbelievers. And sometimes in our Christian life, there, there's streams that are coming in but there's no streams going out. You know, if you think of a, a mountain lake and it's got rivers coming in, for that lake to really stay healthy, there's gotta be outflow as well. So God's calling us to reach out. He's calling us to be able to enter into his mission. So hopefully this morning we get to learn along with uh, the disciples. Let's look at verse one. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. If you're taking notes, the first lesson is outreach, a lesson in, in outreach. And Jesus gives them power, and he gives them the ability to heal. Power over demons, and also God to provide healing. And as we step to reach out, we need the power of God. We can't do it in and of our own strength. It's not by power, by might but by my spirit, says the Lord. When the church began, Jesus encouraged the disciples, before you start going out to reach out, you need to stop and pray and wait for the power of God. So they did, they prayed. And the Holy Spirit came and empowered them to be witnesses. We can't reach out without the power of God. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So they're being sent out to these varying communities to preach the kingdom of God. This is our message as a church, is Jesus Christ and him crucified, God's kingdom. How does someone come into God's kingdom? Through the gospel, through his death, through his, his resurrection. That's what we're sharing. When we have the opportunity to, to speak to unbelievers, we want to speak to them of Christ. We want to speak to them of what Jesus has done on the cross. The healing that's sick demonstrates the kingdom of God. It demonstrates uh, the power of God. The instructions are radical that Jesus gives. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics apiece. Jesus says, I'm sending you out and I don't want you to take anything. And we know they're out for some period of time. Because they come back and they share what God has done. We know they went to several cities, several villages. We don't know if it was two weeks or, or a month. But normally you would pack stuff, right? 
But Jesus says, I don't, I don't want you to take anything for your journey, not even a walking stick, no backpack, no wheat thins, no granola bars, you know, no bread, no money. Leave your wallet at home. Leave your Apple Pay at home. And don't even take a, a change of clothes. When I think of reaching out, a lot of times I want God to line up everything that I see is necessary for that endeavor. So like, let's, let's pack lots of clothes. Let's take granola bars or, okay, there's this, this outreach that the church is being led by the Lord to do. And it's like, okay, are all the provisions there beforehand? But God doesn't work that way, does he? In fact, a lot of times he says, I don't want you relying on your own provision. I don't want you relying upon your own strength. Maybe there's something that God has put on your heart for a while, but you've been thinking, I just don't have the time. I don't have the education. I don't have the resources. I don't have the experience, but we're leaving out the God factor, aren't we? He's not limited to our experience. He's not limited to our resources. And in this Christ-rejecting culture, I think God wants to rock it. He wants to rock this culture with his love, and it takes believers to say, God, I'm trusting you. You're, you're calling me out. You've called me to share the gospel, to love unbelievers. If we were to walk around these Roman-occupied cities, it would probably feel a lot like our cities here in Colorado, our cities throughout the United States. And God was wanting to win hearts to Jesus through the disciples going out. Verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. They're completely dependent upon God providing. We would come into a city, come into a village, and trust that someone would open up their home where they could stay in their home. The instruction then is if someone opens up your home, don't move to another house. You know, that would be offensive. Stay in that initial home that was opened up uh, for you. In verse 5, And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This is an important lesson, an important part of learning to reach out is how do you handle rejection? I think that's a, a fear for a lot of us in sharing what God is teaching us with believers or, or sharing Christ with an unbeliever. What's my neighbor going to think? What are my family members going to think? As we prepare for Thanksgiving, it's like, am, am I going to go there? You know, am I going to share Christ? Am I going to pray before the meal? What if my family members reject me? And here Jesus gives us a, a key way of dealing with rejection is first remember they're rejecting Jesus and you've got to be able to shake it off. You've got to be able to not take it personal and in a sense shake the dust off your feet and keep moving and keep, keep sharing. The disciples needed to go to the next village, the next uh, community. Don't get a hard heart. You don't get angry at that person. But in a sense, it's like, Lord, I'm giving this to you. And I'm going to the next village. So now they're out. They're out doing the work. They're going from town to town. They're preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. God's moving in a, in a powerful way. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. Now we know Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. 
all of these miracles that Jesus are doing, people are starting to talk and say, well, did John the Baptist raise from the dead? And here Herod's feeling a little bit convicted, I think. Could, could you imagine? You have someone executed and they are raised from, from the dead. And by some, that Elijah had appeared. And by others, that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. I don't know that Herod's interest in Jesus was beyond curiosity. I don't know that he really wanted to know Jesus or repent and be in relationship with Jesus. It was that Jesus was the happening thing. All of these miracles and the teachings of Christ were, were getting his attention. But who knows? We, we don't know for sure, but it sure seems to be that that's the case with, with Herod's heart. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And the apostles noticed their disciples, but now they're apostles. Well, what's the difference? The word apostle means... And that they're out. The lecture to the lab. The time is done, whether it's their testimony, the Lord is done. And, Jesus takes them to a deserted place to try to get a, away from the multitude. And it's important for a, a believer says, hey, this is a need that God has met in my life. This is something we've been praying about or we've been reaching out to this friend and they came to know Christ as, as their Savior. We can tend to get really discouraged as believers and so share what God is doing. Well, things don't really go as planned. Have you ever experienced that before? Verse 11, but when the multitude knew it, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of nothing. Jesus doesn't turn the multitude away. You could maybe think that Jesus would say, hey, this is some important time that I'm having with my disciples. They've been out on this journey for a while, but Jesus receives them even though it wasn't the right time. Sometimes serving and quote-unquote ministry is, is planned, you know. Like I knew Sunday at 9 o'clock was coming, Sunday at 11 o'clock is coming. But I'll be honest, sometimes I'm not so willing to serve Sunday at 1 o'clock, right? Or Sunday at 2 o'clock or, or Monday morning at 8. And Paul writes saying, be ready in season and out of season. You might be committed to teach a children's ministry class and you know it's coming up and, and you're prepared but then maybe it's time for rest it's like this is my time with the Lord this is time to get the batteries recharged and that's important as well and, and that's needed but then all of a sudden here comes a need that you didn't anticipate here comes a, a person that you're like oh, I don't know that I really have time for this or I have a heart for this I, I've just been out doing ministry for a month I'm sure this is part of what the disciples are, are wrestling with, but 
Jesus, in his compassion, he loves the multitude. He sees them as a sheep without a shepherd, and he teaches them the kingdom of God, and he heals those that are sick. In verse 12, when the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. In some ways, this is almost comical, because they're really coaching the king of kings, the creator of the universe. Like, Jesus, have, have you noticed that the day is starting to wear away? Like, we're, we're kind of getting close to, to sunset here. You may want to stop teaching and healing. It's time for the multitude to go away. Like, we, we've done this enough. We, we've been out on this journey. We've been ministering all day. But how do they couch it? They kind of couch it in this, this way of saying, you know, it'd be best for the multitude because they've got a journey to tend to. There's, there's no food out here. There's no Chick-fil-A. There's no Chipotle. How's, how's everybody going to eat? Uber Eats does not come out to Bethsaida, right? And Jesus responds, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. And this is the second lesson. It's provision. Jesus is going to teach them in provision, and Jesus says, no, I, I don't want you to send them away. I want you to meet this need. And Jesus is bringing to them an impossible need for them to meet in and of their own strength. We'll find out that there was 5,000 men, not including women and children. This could have easily been 10 to 15,000 people, this, this huge multitude that Jesus is ministering to. You're 12 guys in a deserted place, and Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to, to feed them. And when we think about reaching out, God delights in bringing us opportunities that are bigger than ourselves. Amen? He, he loves pointing out a need, saying, Eric, you can't meet this need. You're going to have to rely upon my strength. You're going to have to rely upon the, the God factor. And the disciples are wrestling with this, and we wrestle with this as well. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all of these people. The other gospels write of this account as well. We know where the five loaves and two fish came from. The disciples went out looking to collect for food. When Jesus says, you've got to feed this multitude, they're like, okay, I guess Guess we got to go do something. Let's, let's see what we can find. And a boy is willing to share his five loaves and two fish. And that's the heart of a child, isn't it? Probably other people had food as well, but they're like, you're not taking my crackers, right? You're not taking my cheese. This is my turkey right here. The boy's like, hey, here, here's, I got five loaves. I've got two fish. And I wonder like the attitude in which the disciples bring. It, it must have been like, this five loaves and two fish, what is that going to do with this whole entire multitude? And in this lesson of provision, take what you have and put it in the hands of the Creator. Here's a need, here's a calling, here's a Christ-rejecting world, and it's easy for us to say, man, the need's too great, the darkness is too great. I'm just going to back out. Just live, live my life in 
isolation, but instead to say, God, this is what I've got. It's not a lot. It's five rolls. It's two fish. I'm putting it in your hands. We try to pray through a verse to be a target verse for us as a family uh, every year. We, we write it on a chalkboard that we have in, in, our, in our house. And a couple of years ago, this was our target verse, was the five loaves and two fish. Because in the season that we were in, we just didn't feel like we had very much. Ever had those seasons? It's like, Lord, we don't have a lot to give to you. In fact, we feel pretty broken and we feel pretty wore out. But we want to give to you our five loaves and our, our two fish. And would you, would you be gracious and would you be faithful to, to our family? And, and he was. And that may be where you're at this morning, where you're like, really? God's challenging me with calling. I'm just trying to survive. And the Lord understands that. But he's able to do a lot if you'll take the five loaves, if you'll take the two fish, and you'll put them into the hands of Jesus. The other gospels let us know as well that they expressed to Jesus, we don't have the money to be able to go and buy food, even if we could buy food, even if Chick-fil-A would cater, we don't have the money to be able to feed this great multitude. For there were about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. Why does Jesus have them sit in groups of 50? Because he wants this distribution of food to be done in decency and in order so that everybody gets fed. I mean, there's six of us in our family, and when we're all really hungry, it gets a little crazy around the dinner table. You got 5,000 plus women and children. This would take a significant amount of time to get them into groups of 50, to count them out and say, Here, here's 50, sit down. Here's 50, sit down. Maybe they started to get with the program as things went on and, and people were putting themselves in, in groups of 50. But 5,000 plus women and children into, into groups of 50. And Jesus has them sit down. Then he took the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. Takes the five loaves, takes the two fish, prays and blesses it and breaks it and hands it out and breaks it and hands it out. And the disciples are the distributor of this miracle. The disciples have the best seat in the house. And when we step into God's calling, when we step into what the Holy Spirit has for us, we get to see God provide. We get to see the behind the scenes of this is all we've got. And yet the Lord was faithful to multiply and this is a lesson that God would want to stick into the hearts of the disciples. There would be times later when they're in a storm and, and Jesus says, you really didn't understand the five loaves and the two fish. You, you really didn't get to this place of trusting my provision. One of the things that's been a real joy for me to see all of these years at Rocky Mountain Calvary is God's provision for our church. Uh, you may have noticed we don't take an offering. There's some, some boxes in the back. If you feel led to, to give to the work of the Lord, you can give online. But God has just been faithful over and over and over to show himself strong to provide for our church. I remember when I first started senior pastoring here, I was 27 years old and the 
church was already established. We were meeting in what is now the, the children's ministry and, and the summit room. And I was terrified. I'm like, I'm just going to mess this whole thing up. And I was like, I don't know how this is going to work. Are, are people going to continue to attend the church? Are they, are they going to give? Are we going to have to let people go? And all these things. But the Lord, through all of that, was, was faithful to provide. When COVID hit, that was a crazy season. It's like, how's this going to work, you know? Church was closed for about 10 weeks. When we came back, it was minimal attendance, but God was faithful. And he, he provided for all of the needs of, of RMC. And he does that for our church body, but he also does that for our lives personally. As we seek first the kingdom of God, as we say, okay, Lord, I'm going to step out into this thing that you're calling me to and trust that you're able to provide. There's leftovers. How many of you love leftovers? Come on now. That's only about 10%. I love leftovers. Leftovers are the best. So they all ate and were filled. And 12 baskets of leftover fragments were taken up by them. How many disciples? 12. How many baskets of leftovers? 12. They each get their own basket of Chick-fil-A. Right? Like here, I didn't know what we were going to do. Jesus was bringing this need to me that I had no, no answers to. And God was teaching them an important lesson of provision. In verse 18, and it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, who do the crowds say that I am? The third lesson is in the identity of Christ. It's the most important lesson. Who is Jesus? Jesus asked the question, who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Makes it personal. Who do you say that I am? We're all going to be asked this question of Christ. Who do you say that I am? Not what do your parents think? What does your spouse think? What does a close friend think? But who, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus to be? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Ding, 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 ding. Peter gets it right. Peter understands it. The word Christ means anointed one. The prophecies in the Old Testament of the Messiah fulfilled in Jesus Christ. These disciples are Jewish men that were looking for the Messiah. And Jesus is the Messiah and Peter understands it and it's revealed to him. When we understand that Jesus is God, not just a man, not just that he exists, but that he's God, God in human flesh, when we come to understand that he died for our sins, my sins personally, that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, repenting of sin, asking Jesus to be the Lord of our life, what does that mean that he would take control of our life? We're saved. Based on who Christ is, based upon what he did upon the cross. In Matthew 17, Matthew records this event as well. And Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Not the rock of Peter. Peter's name means rock. But the rock is the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. 
that Jesus is the Christ. Upon that confession, if the church will stay true to the confession that Jesus is the Christ, stay true to the confession of the gospel, God will build his church. He'll be faithful to do that. As Jesus is lifted up, then God draws men and women to him. So who do you say Christ is? Maybe you've been exploring the idea of Christ for a while, and there's been maybe a rejection of Christ, or maybe a superficial knowledge of Christ, and today the Holy Spirit's putting this upon your heart. Christ is asking you, who do you say that I am? And are you at that place of ready to trust, ready to believe, ready to surrender, receiving his grace and forgiveness of sins? Verse 21, he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. He says, I don't want you to share this yet. It's not time. The time's coming for you to share this, but right now I want you to hold on to it. And the reason why is because of the suffering that was coming for Christ, and it's our last lesson. Saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. The Son of Man. Whenever you see the Son of Man in the Gospels, it's focusing on Jesus' humanity. Son of God focuses on his deity. Both titles given to Jesus. Jesus is Son of Man. I came in human flesh. The reason that Jesus came, he said, I must, I must. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, I must go to these other cities and preach. Jesus knew that he came for the purpose to pay the price for our sins, to be the ransom for our sins. And he says, I must be rejected by the elders and by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, be, be crucified. He knew that he'd be crucified. But notice Jesus, the king of kings, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he predicts his resurrection. I'm going to rise on the third day. Yes, he rose from the dead, but he also called it. And his rising from the dead shows him victorious over sin, over death. He is our Savior. And Jesus had to do this because of our sin. The Father sent the Son as the Savior of the world. This was the plan of God. Christ was slain before the foundations of the world. And Jesus came to fulfill this plan. This would be a shock to the disciples' system. Because as soon as they hear that Jesus is the Christ, they're thinking, no more Roman tyranny. No more being under the Roman occupation. There's so many promises of Christ in the Old Testament of him also ruling and reigning over the nations. That's going to happen in his second coming. And that's what the disciples were really longing for, the deliverance of, of Israel. But Jesus came in his first coming to solve our greatest need, and that is our sin. So even though the disciples are hearing this, they're not understanding. It, it's hard for them to really process that Christ is going to be killed. And that he would rise again the third day. And Jesus calls the disciples into suffering as well. He calls us into suffering as well. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If you want to come after Christ, if, if you want to follow Christ, if you want to be the disciple of Christ, well, these are the terms. This is what it looks like. We have to deny ourselves. Why? Because we're innately selfish and sinful. I wake every, 
up every day. And without Christ in my life, what do I focus on? Team Eric all the way. Wanting my way, my will. So I have to deny that. I have to deny my selfishness, deny my sin, put Christ first, put others before myself. And this is continual. We're told to take up our cross daily, every day, choosing to follow Christ and deny ourselves. What does this mean to take up our our cross? Well, remember, a cross is a brutal form of execution. So what Jesus is saying is, I want you to embrace suffering. I want you to be willing to suffer for the name, the cause of Christ. As, as Christ suffered, that we too would be willing to suffer. And follow me. And follow me. It's interesting in our relationship with Jesus, there's no question of who's in charge. At least there shouldn't be. We get to follow Jesus. He's the Lord. He's the master. We're the student saying, Lord, I'm going to allow you to take control of my life. I'm choosing to follow you today. I think this is really important for the day that we live in right now, right now, because the last few years, it's been boiling for a while. There's change that's been happening in our culture. I think you've realized it. I've realized it. It's no longer cultural to be a Bible-believing Christian in the United States of America. At points in our past and points in our history, it was culturally accepted to believe the Bible. It was culturally accepted to be a follower of Christ. If you're doubting this, just go read the first three chapters of Genesis. It covers some pretty major things that aren't popular in culture. Number one, that God's the creator, that he spoke all things into existence. Uh, Number two, that he made us male and female. Not very popular today. Not very politically correct uh, to say that. Oh, and, and then by the way, number three, that marriage is between a man and a woman. A biological male and a biological female. I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, God just hit this in the first three chapters of Genesis. And Adam and Eve sinned. And in result of that, that we're all sinners. You want to offend the world, just have them read the first three chapters of Genesis, right? So as a follower of Christ... There's going to be suffering because we're not in a Christian culture. But I want to encourage you in a couple of things is that this is the case for most of the world. Most of the world understands when they receive Christ as their Savior that they are entering into a life of suffering and rejection. By choosing Christ, my family may reject me. It could even mean their lives. And they understand that even at that moment of conversion. And though it can be very discouraging, as we look in the New Testament and also throughout church history, the church really thrives when there's persecution. The church thrives when there's opposition because God's bigger. And we see some modern day examples of that. What's taking place in in China with the persecution there. What's taking place in Iran with persecution there. There's testimonies of the gospel spreading in the midst of persecution from the Taliban in Afghanistan. And man, I don't want to suffer. I don't, I don't want to sign up for suffering, but this is part of the Christian life. This is, this is part of crying out to the Lord and saying, God, I want my life to count for eternity. I want you to use my life to cause others to know Christ as their savior. I'm choosing to be a bond servant 
and God allowed his son to suffer for salvation to be accomplished, he's going to allow us to suffer for the message of Christ to go out, to, to resound. Verse 24, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So if we're going through this life and we're just holding on to our life, holding on to our comforts, not wanting to suffer, we're going to lose our life. I think of Lot's wife. Here they were living in Sodom and Gomorrah. God's bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, sends two angels in. These angels rescue Lot and his family, say, don't look back at Sodom. And what does Lot's wife do? She looks back. And she's disintegrated to salt. She was mourning the loss of her life in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where her attention was. In Revelations 12, we have a way to overcome the enemy. It says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their lives to the death. They weren't so attached to this life that they weren't willing to give it away in service. But then whoever loses his life for my sake, says I'm willing to follow Christ, whatever the cost, then you really gain life. Jim Elliott, a missionary to Ecuador, he said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me read that one more time. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In verse 25, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Forgive me for this, but I can't help but think of Tom Brady. Let me explain. Is Tom Brady is the most successful NFL player that has ever existed. Whether you like him or you don't like him, it's hard not to argue that he's, he's the greatest of, of all time. He's pretty much broke every record for quarterbacks in the NFL. He's 45 years old and is still an NFL quarterback. That's ancient for, for the NFL. But as you dig down into his life a little bit, and it's difficult, you know, being a, a public figure, he just recently went through a divorce. So he's got all of these accomplishments, but what happens at the end of the day? He goes home alone. From every indication in his life, he doesn't know Jesus. From, from what he, he has said, we don't see him know, knowing Christ. Now, we should pray for him, that God gets a hold of his life. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? To see him really be transformed by Jesus. But in light of eternity, if Tom Brady doesn't come to know Christ as his Savior, what has he really gained? What are those Super Bowl rings in, in the light of eternity? There's an emptiness there in his life that NFL cannot provide. And we see that with a lot of our professional athletes. They, they've got so much money, they've got so much power, they've got so much prestige, but if they don't know Jesus, it's just emptiness. You, you could go through this life and, and gain the whole world, but if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you don't have anything. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes into his own glory." And in his fathers and of the holy angels, Jesus is not ashamed of us. So we don't want to be ashamed of him. Jesus stood on the cross for us unashamed. Don't be ashamed of Christ. But I tell you truly that there are some standing here 
who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Well, you're going to have to come back next week to see what that means. <laughs> so that's going to get unlocked in the Mount of Transfiguration. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Hmm. Jesus, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you call us to follow you and that you want to use our lives. And yes, it involves sacrifice. Yes, it involves suffering, but it's so worthwhile. And your words are so deep with meaning and they're so convicting. It's so easy to just hold on to our life and to hold on to our comforts instead of to serve you with reckless abandon. Holy Spirit, would you wake us up this morning? Would you remind us of the love that you have for the world, the love that you have for your church? And God, we want to say yes to your calling, big and small. Would you use our lives, or would you use your church, Big C Church, Lord, to take the gospel out here in Colorado and throughout the world? We do pray for a continued movement of your global church, Lord. We want to be effective in these times. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.